On Monday, Russian President Vladimir Putin said in a speech that the idea of Ukraine as a, quote, genuine country was false. He also moved to formally recognize two separatist regions of Ukraine as independent. Then Russian tanks rolled in. Western leaders say Russian troops have moved into rebel-held areas in eastern Ukraine after Vladimir Putin recognized the separatist region's independence. Ukraine, Russia, two countries with a face-off decades in the making, and now seemingly ready to explode. I'm Gustavo Arellano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. It's Wednesday, February 23rd, 2022. Nabi Bulos is a Middle East bureau chief for the Los Angeles Times. Nabi, welcome to the Times. Thank you for having me. You've spent the last few weeks reporting from Ukraine. What's the situation like right now and how are people feeling? Well, it's been just such a major difference. If you compare the feeling really from the last few weeks and what happened yesterday, it's just, you know, totally different. I mean, frankly, you know, for the first few weeks, I'll admit to you, the situation here was quite calm. People were if anything, nonchalant, you know, I mean, I despise to use the word resilient, right, because it's overused. But the fact is that people were quite calm. They were enjoying themselves. I mean, Kiev is a beautiful city, as you, as you probably know. So really, people were just, you know, living normally. In fact, I mean, I mean, despite all the sort of diplomatic brouhaha around them. Now, of course, things are different. But there is certainly a more somber mood in terms of people's, I think, perception of things. I mean, of course, we've come to a head at this point. And so it is a different phase. Unfortunately, you've written about how disinformation has made it really hard for people to determine what exactly Putin and the Russian army's intentions have been. How is that affecting people's decisions in Ukraine about how to you know, live the day to day life? There's been this constant, you know, like, will he, won't he situation with Putin, of course. And then you add the situation in general when it comes to just this deluge of news. I mean, you know, even if you are providing accurate information, it comes as part of a larger continuum that is full of misinformation and disinformation. And that basically makes people really unable to make an informed decision eventually just because there's so much stuff coming in. And so it becomes a matter of, okay, how do we sort of like do this calculus, right? How do we decide to go? How do we decide to stay? You look at sort of these official pronouncements about withdrawals, right? And then you see one about imminent invasions, etc. So all this, of course, has been devastating for businesses and the economy here. I mean, now at some level, you can argue there's some not stability, but there is some movement, right? There is something happening finally, so people can react in in perhaps a more concrete fashion. But really, it's just been, I think, devastatingly, very destabilizing, I have to say, at least mentally for people. Yeah, I can't even imagine trying to come to terms with the whole will he or won't he situation. And it's been going on for a while. Last spring, roughly 100,000 Russian troops were on Ukraine's borders, but didn't end up crossing into Ukraine. So why does the world think Putin will order a full-scale invasion this time? Well, I mean, in a sense, he already did invade before. I mean, 2014, you know, was was an invasion. Ukrainian officials say Russian forces backed by helicopter gunships and armored vehicles took control of a village near Crimea. Ukraine's ambassador to the UN, Yuri Sergeyev, would only say his country plans to defend itself, but not say exactly how. And now the problem is that we have a situation where he has declared these two breakaway republics in eastern Ukraine as independent. And more to the point, he signed a mutual assistance treaty with them. 
Russia is obligated to help them. Russia-backed separatists have violated the ceasefire about 84 times in the past 24 hours. The Associated Press has no independent means of verifying the figures released by the JFO. Now it's worth noting that you have, you know, right outside these republics, uh, you, know, you know, huge Ukrainian army presence, right? And the fact is that the Ukrainian army has been battling these separatists for the last eight years. Yes, it's been largely frozen, right, over much of that time. Or I should say, you know, frozen between quotes here, because, you know, I mean, how could you call something frozen if you are being killed every week? But with that being said, right, the fact is that it was a low-level intensity conflict is what we call it. And now, of course, things have changed. Now we're seeing the entry of Russian troops, you know, for ostensibly peacekeeping operations, right, in the east. Now the problem is, you know, will they stay in the areas of these self-proclaimed republics or will they actually go beyond that line to encompass the entire Donbass region in eastern Ukraine? Сьогоднішнім та завтрашніми можливими рішеннями Росія легалізує свої війська. These are questions we just don't know yet. You mentioned how Russia annexed the Crimean Peninsula back in 2014 with very little effort. And while that was widely condemned by the international community, it was pretty popular in Russia, that move. This time, though, a full-scale invasion of Ukraine will be a much bloodier struggle. How are Russians feeling about all this? Of course, it's hard to say. It's difficult to sort of have an insight into what the Russian people think, because, of course, the media is far more controlled in many ways than other countries. And, I mean, it should be said that there is, I think, a strong anti-war component as well. We just don't necessarily see it that well. With that being said, it is worth noting that Putin spent a long, long time, almost an hour, in what was essentially, you know, a lecture, a historical lecture, where he talks about how Ukraine wasn't even a country, wasn't even a nation, its government was basically a Western puppet. It was really actually, I think, terrifying, just because of, of how dismissive he was of anything that was Ukrainian as a nationality, as an identity, etc. I mean, to the point where he called the government here a regime, right? You know, a bunch of thugs, essentially. The fact is that I think within the ecosystem of Russia's media, love you believe that too as well. After the break, the historical reasons Putin has his eye on Ukraine. And we're back with my LA Times colleague, Nabi Bulos, who's on the ground in Ukraine right now. Nabi, you mentioned this long speech that uh, Vladimir Putin gave just earlier this week. And then last summer, Putin published a 5,000-word essay that basically said the same thing, that Russia and Ukraine are really just one people. Why is Putin so obsessed with Ukraine? In a sense, it was one of the crown jewels of the Soviet Union, right, of the Soviet, the Soviet republics. I mean, in terms of just the sheer amount of development, etc., it's hard to discount the fact that you have, you know, all these areas on the Black Sea, that you have also, I should say, I mean, the country is one of the top exporters of corn, barley, uh, sunflower, and wheat. And, and of course, you also have commodities like gas, etc. So it is an important country economically, of course, but also just geographically. It's so close to Russia. It's its flank. And so, I mean, at some level, it makes sense that he wouldn't want NATO to be, let's say, uh, I mean, setting up bases in that area. And I mean, it should be said, this is not a new thing with Putin. He mentioned this, uh, you know, like like the anger at the at NATO expansion has been a long running affair with him and with Ukraine, especially the situation where, you know, he feels that this government has been taking moves 
to sort of cancel its Soviet past. He mentioned the breaking up of Lenin's uh, statues and breaking up of, of Soviet monuments, etc. And all these seem to have actually hit him really personally. It was interesting just to watch that lecture because it really was a lecture. And just to see the rage at some point with which he was speaking. It was really, really quite insightful, actually. But now, basically, the knife is to Russia's throat. And he felt he had to do this move. So if you know Ukrainians at all, they're very proud of who they are, which is to say Ukrainian, not Russian. Just a really quick example, Americans for decades, we've pronounced Ukraine's capital as Kiev, which is how you pronounce it in Russian. But in recent years, the Ukrainian government and especially the Ukrainians themselves, they've been pushing the English language world to pronounce their capital as Kiev, which is closer to how they say it in Ukrainian. How else are Russians pushing against Russification? This movement has become more prominent since 2014 when, when Russia first invaded parts of eastern Ukraine. That already was a big deal, right? That already sort of brought up a surge of Ukrainian nationalism. And the best manifestation of that, of course, has been the increase in learning Ukrainian, right? The move to uh, take out street names with Lenin or, or other Soviet figures, removing statues, etc. I mean, there has been a real push towards that, right? And of course, also, again, just to sort of use Ukrainian in magazines, etc. I mean, in some cities, I guess, you would see the situation where if you spoke Russian, you would actually be somewhat frowned upon, you know, within certain circles. Of course, and it should be said here, I mean, a lot of people still speak Russian, and there are still ethnic Russians here, and they get no harassment at all. But things have sort of become different since 2014, just in terms of being sure to maintain a strong sense of Ukrainianess, if you will. Ukraine isn't the only former Soviet republic pushing back against Russian influence these days. There's been protests in Georgia, Belarus, and most recently in Kazakhstan against rulers too close to Putin. And all that discontent angers him and his stated intent to create a so-called sphere of influence with those former Soviet republics. Why is this so important to him? Well, I mean, it's all part of this whole return to the Soviet Union. I mean, people have said this quite often now, but Putin really did consider the break of the Soviet Union as one of the greatest tragedies of the 20th century. And also more to the point, it is a matter of security. I mean, these countries are within the periphery of Russia. I mean, at some level, it's not surprising that he did this. There's also a lot of anger against the West. Nabi, President Joe Biden has already said that Americans won't fight and die for Ukrainians. So what options does that leave to deter Putin from pushing further into Ukraine? It's not as if Putin is going to be able to have a, such an easy time of it. This is the second largest country in Europe. It has about 41.3 million people, I believe, or at this point, probably even more. And I mean, a lot of them are very much anti-Russian at this point, and this will only push them to be so even further. And so there will be, you know, some kind of popular resistance, right? And of course, it should be mentioned that in recent weeks, there have been these territorial defense forces, right, which are essentially people training to just, you know, like know how to shoot a gun, etc., you know, know how to organize themselves quickly. And that perhaps is where you have the most hope, right? The people here really do have the ability to organize quickly. And that's going to be a big deal moving forward. Now, of course, you know, the question is, is Putin going to be taking just only parts of eastern Ukraine? Is he going to only stop at the Donetsk and Luhansk uh, People's Republic's borders, quote unquote, right? You know, what is he going to do there? These are the questions that we still do not know. It's actually quite fluid at the moment. Finally, Nabi, looking beyond Ukraine, already Republicans in the U.S. are accusing Biden of being soft. The U.S. is still smarting from 20 years of wars in Afghanistan and the Middle East. Its international reputation has seen better days. How much of Putin's push into Ukraine is really a game of chicken to see how much further the U.S. can be embarrassed on the world stage? 
I mean, it's hard to say if it's a game of chicken because, you know, the rage he displayed just shows that there's these deep-seated grievances at this point. I mean, this is a situation where now we see Russia just really coming into its own as a power yet again, or at least trying to project that image in any case. And basically saying that at this point, the West has ignored us for too long and they won't ignore us anymore. Nabi, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. On Tuesday, Biden addressed the U.S. on the situation in Ukraine. I'm announcing the first tranche of sanctions to impose costs on Russia in response to their actions yesterday. These have been closely coordinated with our allies and partners and will continue to escalate sanctions if Russia escalates. Biden and other Western leaders like European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen presented a united front in denouncing the moves Putin took on Monday. Russia's decision to recognize the Ukrainian regions of Donetsk and Luhansk is illegal and completely unacceptable. The same is true for the decisions to send troops to these regions. We cannot accept this. They announced a series of sanctions against Russia for its further incursions into Ukrainian territory. The sanctions directly target individuals and companies involved in these actions. They target banks that finance the Russian military apparatus and constitute and contribute to the destabilization of Ukraine. Meanwhile, the Russian parliament authorized the use of military force abroad. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, avocados, a beloved Mexican fruit, now tainted with violence. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Kasha Basalian, Ashley Brown, and Angel Carreras. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editor is Kinsey Moreland. Our executive producers are Hasmin Aguilera and Shawnee Hilton. And our theme music is by Andrew Eatman. Special thanks to Lauren Rabb. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news in this month. Gracias.